Well, hey, everybody, and welcome back to Storytellers, where we are exploring simple truths with eternal impact through story. My name is James Savage, and I have had a blast getting to spend this summer with you. Now, today kicks off week five of our seven-week series, where we have been diving into the art and importance of storytelling in Scripture. We've been learning about Jesus's use of parables in his teachings. We've also been pairing Jesus's teachings with true life stories that have happened in our own community. Now, the beautiful thing is that every time that we do this, we see how scripture not only exists to inform us of our past, but it has the power to transform our lives today. If this is the first time that you're here, I'm really glad that you're here, but I encourage you to pause and go all the way back to week one. I don't want you to miss out on the parables and the teachings and the true life stories that have been shared on those episodes. Today, let's discuss why stories resonate so much with us as we begin week five of Storytellers. So in a world of infinite information, do you notice that we are still drawn to stories? But why is that? Why is it that for all of human history, we can't help but tell each other stories? Now, there's a lot of science to this. There's a lot of science behind why our brains are drawn to narratives, to beginnings, middles, and endings, to heroes and villains, conflict and resolution. You see, stories give us meaning to the endless stream of information that we can so easily access. They also allow us to share truth that simple data could never communicate. But not all stories are created equal. If you look throughout human history, you'll see that we seem to be drawn to similar stories and similar kinds of stories. We are drawn to stories of heroes with victory and freedom, redemption, and love. I mean, think about it. There is a kindness and power and integrity that we are drawn to in King T'Challa from Black Panther. There's a heroism that we're drawn to in William Wallace in Braveheart. The courage and confidence of Elizabeth Bennet from Pride and Prejudice draws us into her story. Have you ever asked why do we love stories that have a happy ever after kind of ending or transformational moments for the main characters? It's because they not only point us to the way things are, but they invite us to imagine the way that things could be. J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings, he once said in an essay, quote, stories point to an underlying reality that's almost more true than the way life is actually being lived out in this world. Stories are able to capture our longing for something more, to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. They remind us that hope can be found even in life's darkest moments. The stories that we tell each other are often a reflection of the aspirations that we have for the world around us. Deep down, we know that we are made for something more than simply existing. And stories remind us of that truth. And so the best stories allow us to put the information that we have about who we are and the world that we're living in and the hopes that we have for the future into context. That brings us to the parable that we're going to look at today. It's often titled, The Friend at Midnight. Now, Luke fits this parable, The Friend at Midnight, right after Jesus teaches the Lord's Prayer. And by doing that, 
we get insight on how we get to approach God in prayer. Now, the Lord's Prayer is a beautiful and succinct guide that teaches us how to pray. It teaches us how to speak to God, how to ask for provision, forgiveness, and protection. But what we don't get out of the stanzas from the Lord's Prayer is a clear view of God's perspective in prayer. We learn how to view God, but it begs the question, how does God view us when we pray? So to get a picture of God's side of prayer, Jesus immediately follows the stanzas of the Lord's Prayer with a parable. He knows that a story will be able to teach a truth that another list of words wouldn't be able to. It's a genius move on his part. Through the parable, he invites the listener into the idea of prayer by asking us to imagine ourselves in a story. The idea of relationship through prayer comes alive because our minds can place ourselves in the story that Jesus is telling. Now, to fit the story of the friend at midnight directly after the Lord's prayer tips us off as to how we are to come to the Lord in prayer and what we can expect from God. These insights are absolutely incredible. This parable teaches us about God's heart and encourages us to lean into our access to Him. The story ultimately boils down to someone being inconvenienced by another person's request, but Jesus shows how God's heart is different from the character who is being reached out to. This parable teaches us not to be bashful in prayer. By the time the parable has concluded, one thing will be clear. Jesus taught us how to pray so that we would pray. So let's dive into the parable of the friend at midnight. If you wanna read along with me, you can find this parable in Luke chapter 11, starting in verse five. I will be reading from the message translation. Then Jesus said, imagine what would happen if you went to a friend in the middle of the night and said, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. An old friend traveling through just showed up and I don't have a thing on hand. And the friend answers from his bed, don't bother me. The door's locked, my children are down for the night. I can't get up and give you anything. But let me tell you, even if he won't get up because he's a friend, if you stand your ground knocking and waking all the neighbors, he'll finally get up and get you whatever you need. Jesus continues, here's what I'm saying. Ask and you'll get it. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will open. Don't bargain with God, be direct. Ask for what you need. This is not a cat and mouse hide and seek game we're in. If your little boy asks for a serving of fish, do you scare him with a live snake on his plate? Or if your little girl asks for an egg, do you trick her with a spider? As bad as you are, you wouldn't think of such a thing. You're at least decent to your own children. And don't you think the father who conceived you in love will give the Holy Spirit when you ask him. Y'all, Jesus is blunt with what he teaches through this parable. As children of God, we are meant to approach his throne with confidence and boldness just as a child approaches their parent. Now, I'm not sure about you, but I need this parable. Personally, I can get caught up in the magnitude and the majesty and the mightiness of God. 
And sometimes my prayers can lean into, well, God, it's your will, so you do what you're going to do. But this parable teaches us to do the opposite. It teaches us to knock on the door of prayer and to bring the concerns of our heart to our heavenly Father who cares about the things that we are praying about. I need this reminder when I come to God with unfilled desires and with desperate situations. I need to remember that because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, I have the ultimate access to God, more access than I could ever ask for or deserve, but it's been given to me and it's been given to you because the God that we pray to is a good father who cares for his children. Now, a hard truth is that we don't get to control how our prayers are answered. Prayer is not a formula or a transaction. It's a part of a relationship. We may not get to decide the things that are outside of our control, but the more we come to God in prayer, the more we are able to see His hand at work as He guides us through the peaks and valleys of life. Which brings us to our storyteller for today. Here at Crosspoint, we often say that prayer is not the only thing that we do, but it is always the first thing that we do. If you're like Malia and her husband, Scott, you've had moments that are so dire and so desperate that prayer was the only thing that you had to hold on to. Not too long ago, they had a moment when they boldly came to God with prayer, but they weren't praying for bread for a neighbor. They were praying for their child. Malia and her husband, Scott, they attend the Nashville campus. They've been a part of the Crosspoint family for quite some time. And recently, Malia shared a bit of her story in which she and Scott displayed a great act of faith through praying on behalf of their child. Sometimes when I think about um, testimonies, you know, because ultimately that's what I'm here to share is not just my husband and I's testimony, but my son's testimony. There's power in it because our testimonies help other people by encouragement and edification. As I was kind of thinking about where does this story begin, I think the wisdom or revelation that was given to me is that it began long before my husband and I found out I was pregnant. And so when I look at Luke 11, and there's, in verse 9 through 10, talks about the persistency of when you knock or when you seek or when you ask, things will be given to you. Years before I found out I was pregnant with my son, I had been asking for um, some of the gifts. You know, in First Corinthians, it talks about the gifts of the Spirit. And so I had been praying and just asking the Father, you know, for different gifts, whether that's discernment or wisdom, a prayer language, all of these things. And I had stopped asking. And so I think my story really begins there with that two years prior when I was asking. So fast forward to 2019, my husband and I found out we're pregnant with our first child. Um, we don't know it's a boy yet. We're experiencing all of those range of emotions that you would feel, you know, we're excited. We're, how's this going to change our dynamic? We've been married for seven years. And we get to our 20-week ultrasound and our doctor comes in and tells us that our son is going to be born with a congenital heart defect. Um, it's called hypoplastic left heart syndrome. And essentially that means that the left side of his heart did not develop. So instead of having a four-chamber heart, he will only have a three-chamber heart and his heart won't work properly. It's not necessarily um, a condition that can be fixed. 
it's something that you can either do surgeries or uh, potentially a heart transplant would be needed. At the time, they were thinking he would just need surgeries. So in this process, obviously, that is a lot of information to take in. My husband and I felt like we were given a choice at that moment. We could either do it the, the world's way, which is like Google, you know, find information about this condition. We can try to control a situation that is ultimately completely out of our control, or we can try to walk this path differently. Um, I kind of referred that as like the road less traveled, the road that most people don't choose. And it was a road where we were very intentional about our community that surrounded us. Um, it was a community that would only speak the truth. And by the truth, I mean scripture. Remind us who Jesus is. That's not to tell us what the outcome would be, but it's to tell us that he's a good, good father. And I remember one of the wonderful things I believe about marriage is that when you have a partner, one, it can be weak, but the other one's normally strong in those moments and vice versa. And I'll never forget this night. I was just staring at myself in the mirror in the bathroom. We'd probably learned the news two weeks prior. And my husband walked in and he wrapped his arms around me and he said, I've got you. And I said, well, that's good, but who has you? And he said, Jesus does. And I think that really set the tone for the way that we chose to walk the next, you know, six to eight months because my husband really was leaning into the word. And so what we chose to do is we listened to worship music. We listened to other people's testimonies of healing. And we just really um, sought after the kingdom of God. So when I think about Jesus visiting a friend at midnight, he visited us every day. <laughs> and every day was midnight for us. Um, it doesn't mean that it was easy. And we watched our community kind of step in. Uh, in those moments of weakness, we had people praying for us. We had people believing in our son's healing Un unconditionally. There was no condition on, you know, this belief that our son would be healed. We just didn't know how or when. And so that's how we walked the next five months of my pregnancy. We found out about three weeks before he was born that another condition was present in his heart and that potentially he would need a transplant. But we would not know that until he was born. So that kind of set us, you know, I often joke that every time we went to the doctor, because I went to more doctor's appointments in that pregnancy than I'd probably been to in my entire life, it was kind of looking at the scale of Lady Justice, and one side was faith and one side was science. And we would leave those appointments, and science felt weightier, felt heavy, felt like it was winning. And we would have to reground ourselves into what faith says. And faith ultimately means that we're just walking sight unseen. And so let's fast forward to February 6, 2020, and our son is born. I didn't get to see him or hold him. Nobody told me if he was okay. He was just taken from the room because his condition was that critical. He was going to need actually a procedure done the day he was born. They were going to put in a little stent to kind of open up the passageway so oxygen could flow. And I remember um, against the better judgment of nurses, I got a wheelchair because I had a C-section. <laughs> and I was able to get to him before he was taken back, and my husband and I were praying. And I had mentioned earlier that uh, I had pursued persistently the gifts of the Spirit. Um, and there was one particular gift I felt like uh, I just had kind of stopped asking for. And as we were praying over my son before he was taken back, uh, I was given my prayer language. 
I think about the graciousness of the Father, and I had persistently been asking, but I stopped, you know, but he remembered that that was something that I wanted, and I don't think it's a coincidence that on the day my son was born, I was also given the gift of becoming a mother, but the gift um, of my prayer language. And so when I think about a journey uh, with the Lord and like our relationship, I think it's ongoing. You know, He's continually revealing Himself to us and even continually giving us revelation on a story that happened three years ago. So our son was taken and they did the procedure. It went well. And then we found out the day after he was born that he would in fact need a transplant. So he would be listed as a class 1A, which is the highest that you can be essentially most urgent um, on a transplant list. And that was going to be the best chance of his survival. So we spent the next few months in the hospital. The average wait time for a match is, they say, six to eight weeks. But you have no way of knowing, obviously. Um, And I think the weight of hearing that news that our son was going to need a transplant first was very devastating because of what we the reality of what that means for another family. But we had a doctor and a few people at the hospital who really painted this picture of the gift of transplant and and kind of the miracle that transplantation means, whether that's for an adult or for a child. It's really what Jesus gave us at the cross. It's a chance for another family to choose to save, uh, to choose to give their loved one a legacy. And those those doctors really helped shape my view at that point of what it would mean for my son to be a transplant recipient and for my husband and I to be parents of a child who's received a transplant. But to say that that was easy information to receive is um, not acknowledging the truth. And so at that point, my husband and I decided that we really needed to keep pouring into the Word. And so we would read Psalm 91, the Psalm of Protection, every morning and every evening, and we would take communion. And that became a really crucial element to kind of our story at the hospital, but also reminding us of the power that's found um, in Psalm 91 and the power that's found in in communion um, with our Savior and believing for our son's healing. So the goal was to keep our son as healthy as possible, which is relative when he's very, very sick in the hospital. Um, until he can get a match. And so we committed to doing that um, every day. Along the way, we'd been in the hospital about two-ish weeks or so. And my husband and I had read in a small group at Crosspoint years before The Circle Maker. And I went to my husband and I said, hey, I think we're supposed to pray for a day that our son would come home. I know that sounds wild and it sounds very bold. and But I feel like the Spirit is saying you know, let's circle this prayer and make it big and bold and ask your community to join you. So my husband said, okay, well, let's pray about it separately. So I was like, all right, that's fine. So after a couple of days, we came back together and um, I told him that I did not want to say the day I felt like we were supposed to circle. And he said, why not? And I said, it just feels so far away. If you've ever spent any amount of time in a hospital, you know that an hour feels like a day and a day feels like a week and a week feels like months. And he said, well, I believe the Lord had told me before Towns was born that Thursday to Sunday was very important. And I said, well, I think we're supposed to pray that he's home by Easter. So we started a countdown in our room. Um, We had a board and instead of circling it, we put a heart around it. Um, And every day we would 
mark the days down and put another day up. And I think about two weeks in, our doctors and nurses were like, these people <laughs> are, um, they, they either thought like they're so out of touch with reality or they just are living on a cloud, cloud nine. You know, one nurse eventually told us that we were the family that was ridiculously hopeful. Other people would walk in and say, well, you're one day closer. But the thing about faith is we were walking in an unknown realm. We had no way of knowing if our prayer would be answered, if we would be home as a family by Easter. We had no way of knowing if we would be given a gift that we could never, ever repay. But we chose day in and day out that we were going to go to that hospital and we were going to read Psalm 91. We were going to take communion and we were going to believe and keep essentially seeking and asking and I believe when we seek and ask, it's got to be aligned with Scripture, right? I can't can't ask for what I want or what I believe I want. It's like, are my requests, um, am I professing the goodness of God? Am I believing that I have a good, good Father? Am I saying that my hope is in a person and that hope is Jesus Christ, no matter how my situation um, turns out? And so as we're getting closer at this point— we all remember 2020 and the the trauma that we've all experienced because of it. COVID had started and my husband and I were no longer allowed to be at the hospital at the same time. You know, as we're approaching Easter, it's the end of March, and it feels like it's not possible because once you undergo a transplant, you don't just automatically go home. There's going to be a stay at the hospital on the other side of that. But along the way, we... You know, my husband had the wisdom to pray for unity with our doctors. I definitely went through an education when it comes to how the inner workings of the hospital work. And we had an instance where they believed our son needed to have another procedure. My husband had been praying for unity among our team. I didn't even know that he had been praying this. But leading up to that surgery, you know, it felt something in my spirit did not feel right. And I downplayed it at first as I just don't understand medicine. I don't understand, you know, what's needed. I need to trust my doctors. And the morning of the surgery, our ICU doctor walked in and said, he's in perfectly good health. Let's not rock the boat. And I was like, okay, um, well, maybe we should speak with everyone else, you know. So they ended up coming and running some more tests and, and all of the doctors, teams of doctors decided it was in his best interest to delay the, the procedure a little while longer. And really the moral of the story is that a prayer my husband had set into motion, you know, weeks before that was answered in that moment when he watched our team of doctors disagree, but then come to a conclusion for the best interest of our child. And that's just one of many ways we watched the Lord just kind of show up for us in, miracul in a miraculous way. And it was because we were always praying and we were always knocking and we believed that Jesus would ultimately answer us. He would not turn us away. He would not turn us back on us. So as we're approaching Easter, it definitely feels like there's no way that we could be home <laughs> as a family, but we just keep putting one foot in front of the other and believing that it was possible. And on March 27th, uh, my husband FaceTimed me when I was sitting at my office. And when I answered, our doctor was standing there and said there was a match for our son and that he was about to receive a transplant later that evening. Um, and so the last thing that was said is all my husband asked the doctor is, is it possible? And he said, it's possible. So then we have this like renewed sense of 
you know, elation and hope uh, that it could be possible that we'd be home by Easter. So our son undergoes his transplant. Everything goes amazing. Um, And then we watch as all the doctors are like, we haven't seen a child come off, you know, his oxygen and come off, uh, get his tubes out because there's all these different things that happen post-transplant as quickly as our son did. And it was just another reminder that the Lord was like, I'm going to do this for you. The way it works when you go into the hospital and get into the step-down unit, which is the next place you get to go before you go home, is you don't actually find out when you're leaving till the morning of. You know, I understand why they do that, but it's also, as a parent who has never been a parent before, a little bit frightening because there's no prep time. But we found out on Thursday morning, which was April 9th, that our son would be released around noon. And so we walked out of that hospital um, on Thursday, March 9th, and walked into our house, and we were all home by Easter. And um, to explain the goodness of God in just a short podcast episode is um, not sufficient because what He did for us, not only did He carry us, but He provided for us every single need that we needed uh, our strength. There were days when I thought, you know, I've had enough. I can't, I can't, I'm tired. Uh, emotionally, I'm drained. And somehow, some way, there would be a strength that I couldn't provide. There was also a peace that was unexplainable. He set up opportunities for my husband to minister to other people in the hospital, to teach them about him. It was probably one of the most, the closest times I've ever been to the Lord. Part of that was probably desperation. Part of that was knowing I had no control. So when I think about Jesus visiting his friend at midnight, I think that applies to all of us. This parable is so true. And I think the beauty about our relationship with Christ is we could be talking about the fact that my son was needed a life-saving procedure in order to go home with us. Or we could just be talking about something that you think is simple, but it means the world to him if you would ask and you would seek him, whether that's for a career, whether that's in a relationship, whether that's for your health, your finances. Um, What I learned in this experience is the Lord genuinely, genuinely cares about what's important to you. So now my son is three and a half. He's doing amazing. He, if you met him, you wouldn't know that he had a transplant. (laughs) So in that season, I believe the Lord imparted a lot of wisdom to me on what prayer looks like. And I used to think prayer was a formal occasion and I set aside a specific amount of time or I, you know, had to be sitting at my kitchen table or on my couch and have my Bible in front of me. And what I believe the Lord showed me is that prayer essentially manifests itself when I worship whether that's listening to uh, worship music, whether that's reading the Bible, whether that's even listening to a sermon and the Spirit essentially brings something to mind and allows me to be in open communication with the Father. And I've learned that prayer is really ongoing. It's never ceasing. You know, I could be in mid-conversation with Him and the phone could ring and I have to answer it. And then I can go right back to that conversation. He's also taught me that I think now after I've I've witnessed firsthand these big, big ways in which He's answered my prayers. I have this tendency to downplay things that maybe I think pale in comparison to to that. So an example would be my son suffers from 
eczema, and he has uh, since he was about six months old. He also has chronic ear infections, and there's several reasons for that. But I think I found myself in these moments where I was very frustrated about not being able to solve it, that I, I took control of those things. And so I had to remember that it's big and small. It's not just like, yes, he saved my son's life. He also cares about him having skin without itchy spots. And he's not meant to live with ear infections. Like that's not the way the Lord designed us. And so I then had to ground myself again and really seek again and ask for him to give me wisdom on the situation, ask for him to put the right people in our sphere, introduce me to people that I wouldn't have met. And so over the last you know, 18 months, I've really pursued that. I wish it was always immediate because <laughs> I think we live in a world where instant gratification is what we would prefer and who wouldn't. And sometimes it is immediate. Um, but in my case, I just kept praying about it. I kept asking about it. Um, and in the last three months, He's really put a few people in our path that have kind of changed that dynamic and given me information that I hadn't, I didn't have before, which allowed the revelation to set in that the Lord provided. And so I would just really encourage everyone to remember it's the big and the small. Nothing is too small. Nothing is too big. Our God is so much greater. And the other thing that I'm the most grateful for is people have asked me, you know, what's it like to be the mom of a son who had a heart transplant or, you know, what was that experience like? I'm sure you wish you would have had just a healthy baby. And of course, I wish I would have had a healthy baby. But, you know, Scripture talks about the double portion. When we stand in relationship with Christ, because of Christ, we get to live in abundance. And things are always going to be greater than we could ever imagine. And my son... He is more than I could have ever dreamed. He is kind, and he is tough, and he is so tenderhearted. And that's not because of anything that my husband and I did. That's just because the Lord created him, and he was made in his image. And if I had sat down, you know, in 2019, before I knew of his condition and made a list, half of who my son is I wouldn't have put on there. Um... And so if you're going through something difficult, I just want to remind you that the Lord is the Lord who always upholds His promises, and He's a Lord who gives. He's a Lord of the double portion, and um, the quality of what you receive from Him is more than you could imagine. Had Malia and Scott not chosen to approach God with a bold prayer, who knows how the story would have ended. Maybe they still would have gotten home from the hospital by Easter of 2020. Maybe not. We simply don't know. What we do know is they approached God with bold faith and they were rewarded by the way that God walked with them through this leg of their journey. While this isn't the outcome of every story, every time, what this story and what Jesus's parable teaches us is that we don't know unless we ask. 
Now, before you leave, I want to mention that Malia has written a book. It's called Ridiculously Hopeful, and it dives deeper into the story and the lesson that we shared on this podcast today. Now, she's also graciously given us four copies of this book that we are going to give away. We're gonna give them away to the first four people that DM us at crosspoint.tv on Instagram with their address. So head over to Instagram right now and see if you can get your copy of Ridiculously Hopeful. As we close out today's episode, I wanna remind you that we are all a part of a story that fits into God's bigger story a story that he is still writing in my life and in yours. So as he reveals to you how your story fits into his, we'd love to hear about it at crosspoint.tv slash share your story. I hope that you like and subscribe this podcast. And if this episode has been meaningful to you, then I encourage you to share it. If you tag us at crosspoint.tv, we may even repost it. You can follow along with our Storytellers Sunday series at crosspoint.tv slash watch now and check out the show notes for questions that will help you go deeper into the parable that we talked about today. Now, I hope that you tune in next week because not only are we going to dive into the parable of the lost son, we're going to hear a story from a man named Rich who literally lived that story. Check this out. When you get into that world, you don't leave. You either get killed or you go to jail. I mean, there's there's not an exit. And I knew that. And uh, my mom found me. I was at my little basement, knocked on my door. And she's like, son, somebody's trying to get your attention. Somebody's trying really hard to get your attention. How much are you gonna have to lose before you'll listen? And at that point, I mean, no one felt like the only good thing I had in my life was a little boy. But I knew he was there, and I knew he was something special. Um, But anyway, the next day, my dad finds me, and he says, love you, son. You can come home anytime. I need you to know, though, you're killing your mother. You're killing her. You're all she ever thinks about. She prays for you all day, every day. So when I went to work that night, I went to went to to the van and just told him, I can't do it anymore. I'm done. My heart's not in it. I just can't. And he says to me, well, you know, I can't let you leave. You know too much stuff. 